City's got a 2-1 lead on the White Sox. Other games in progress. Yankees and the Rays. Tampa Bay is still clinging to a 2-1 advantage in that ball game. And now the Yankees have tied it up 2-2 as we go to the eighth inning. Boston, 10 Toronto, four. They're in the bottom of the seventh at Fenway Park. Your tee times are out for the Open Championship starting on Thursday. Tiger goes off 10, 10 a.m. Eastern time. Coming up Tuesday, Fitz and I are going back to camp. Football summer camp, to be exact. And we're bringing a friend. Lewis Riddick joins. Plus, Jason Fitz hates ranch. I mean, it's overrated. That and more Tuesday on Golic and Wingo. Six Eastern on ESPN Radio and ESPN2. Under the Hood. With Jonathan Hood. Tim crushes this ball. He throws the bat. The ball goes flying and it's gone. Under the hood, behind the scenes, nobody really sees. Four runs. Flying in the air deep. Is it enough? It's gone! Ball game over! Hey, I'm hot. Jonathan Hood. I'm hot. Rubisky. Robinson. Allen Robinson. Touchdown and Mac will take it all the way in for a touchdown. A lot of this is behind the scenes or under the hood. The mark in it. Oh! He didn't come for the massage. He came for the fight show. Oh, baby. Woo! Jonathan Hood. Oh, no. Put a body on that man, please. Breaks the hole. Swift got running room. Swift got to go. 30, 20, 10, 5. Touchdown, Swift. Under the hood with Jonathan Hood. I'm the man. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. What's up? Welcome in. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. With... Open phone lines at 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our telephone number. Poor Eric. Uh, on Twitter, Twitter.com, tweet. What was that? Where am I? Twitter.com, tweet J-Hood. Also on Snapchat, Snap J-Hood. You follow me on Snapchat. Uh, I'll follow you back guaranteed as we broadcast live from our first Midwest Bank Studios. from Darnell Mayberry, who covers the NBA for TheAthletic.com. We'll get his thoughts about some of the goings-on around the NBA. Also, uh, the passing of a legend today, Pernell Sweepy Whitaker. If you're a boxing fan or know of one, tell them to come to the listening device of their choosing, because we'll hear from Myron Metcalf, big-time boxing fan, boxing analyst, you could say, for ESPN. Uh, we'll get his thoughts on the passing of Pernell Whitaker. That's right in my wheelhouse as a young guy watching boxing and watching Pernell. It's just like, wow. I mean, you think of Floyd Mayweather, especially in the generation that we have here today, as like the top of the top when it comes to, to boxing uh, for some. And, but Whitaker was right there as far as pound, pound for pound, one of the best fighters that you will find. Uh, and he, he passed away, died with a car accident at age 55. So we'll hear from Myra Metcalf coming up at 9.30. Right here on ESPN 1000. Play time for your thoughts as well. 312-332-ESPN is our phone number. You know, you ever notice in, in politics, in sports, in news, if you go through your timeline on Twitter, or go through Facebook or Snapchat, whatever your favorite device is when it comes to social media. 
You ever notice there will be some that will say, you know, I don't want this force fed on me. I don't want someone to tell me what to like or what to do. In our politics, you don't want to be told to be a conservative or a liberal. You just want to do what you want, what you think is best for your values. When you are a sports fan, you like the sports that you like, and you should not be force-fed the sports that that you say that they say you need to like. They meaning the sports media, they meaning bloggers, they meaning people in your circle. For me, as a sports fan, and I, I guess maybe I was like this years and years ago. I'm not like this now. If there is a sporting event that is interesting, that is compelling. That is a game seven, or is it a, a game where you see the match between one person or the other, and it has stakes on the line? I'll watch it if I'm available. Uh, you know, we, we hear a narrative here and there about in 2019 that live sports doesn't work anymore. That because we're so busy going out to dinner, spending time with the kids, running this and that, going all doing all these different things. That we don't have time for live sports anymore. And that's not true. It's, it's just not true. When Tiger One Woods won his last major, you could see a sea of people on your timeline commenting on Tiger Woods, watching it either on their device, watching on, on traditional television. People were watching. When it comes to a Game 7, even if you're not a hockey fan in the NHL, you're going through it just to find out, okay, well, who won? You're going to just tune in just to see what's going on, even if it's not your favorite sport. Tennis is not my favorite sport. You, this will be one of the rare times that I will bring up tennis on the program because I know, I know you. You are an ESPN 1000 listener that wants to hear about Chicago sports. And I have also the national audience on the app that are listening to me from Dickerson Hood shows. So we always have our mixed bag on this program. We mix in a lot of different sports, not just Chicago sports. It's just interesting storylines that you need to know. This is the show that tells you what's going on. Uh, tonight that you'll be talking about tomorrow. Usually we are the newspaper for tomorrow or the, you know, the news for tomorrow. And so yesterday, JD and I were talking about what's going on in Wimbledon because the reason why we're talking about it, not because we're these ardent tennis fans, but you have really three quality men when it comes to tennis in all of the world. Just three. It's Roger Federer. Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal. Yesterday, it was Federer against Djokovic. And, and here's the reason why it was interesting. First of all, we were watching the, the Wimbledon final. In one of the greatest and longest finals in tennis history, Djokovic outlasted Roger Federer in a nearly five-hour classic to win his fifth Wimbledon title. 16th major title overall. Four hours and 57 minutes. Almost five hours for this, right? But it was compelling television. If I didn't watch it all five hours, but it was toward the, the back end of that. I'm watching him just like, these guys are not even, they're not even sweating. <laughs> they're going back and forth because it's a real rivalry. And it, besides, if you're not a tennis fan or I don't watch, the point is, is that it was something that was compelling on television where it's like, well, who's going to win this? Because neither one of these guys are trying to give an inch. It was interesting. And so... When you look at American United States tennis players, we haven't seen a U.S. Open winner since the early 90s. It's been a long time. But what we're seeing here is Federer and Djokovic going back and forth. I'm just like, man, how long is this thing going to go? 
the competitive spirit keeps me interested as a sports fan. I'm always telling you, I'm looking for something interesting, right? That's interesting. So, J.D. and I got a chance to talk to Patrick McEnroe from ESPN. And we talked a little bit about what uh, what happened there with Djokovic winning the Wimbledon because five hours, pretty interesting. Listen. ESPN tennis analyst Patrick McEnroe, who was uh, at Wimbledon covering the big event for us at ESPN. And we began our interview by asking Patrick, from a pure entertainment standpoint, where does this Grand Slam final rank in terms of ones that you've watched in your lifetime? I mean, I got to tell you, it's it's right up in the top. I mean, uh, I'm going to go back to Federer and Nadal, obviously here. You know, Djokovic and Nadal at the Australian Open. But, I mean, this one's right up there. You know what I loved about this match today, guys? I love the fact that we, we saw some vulnerability from both guys. You know, Djokovic at the beginning of the second set sort of lost his way. It looked like he was out of it. Federer in the tie breaks and early in the fifth set showed, you know, he got a little bit nervous at times. But the way that both guys were able to bounce back from that and play, you know, obviously tennis at a whole nother level was, was incredible. But the way they also were able to handle, I guess, you know, the disappointments that they both had during the match and come back. So to me, it sort of had everything. I mean, it's a Wimbledon final. There's so much on the line. And how does Roger Federer do it? He's going to be 38 next month. You know, play that hard for that long at that intensity, uh, obviously comes up short, but still doesn't, you know, almost in, for five hours on the court. Absolutely remarkable. If Djokovic can still do that in five years, he's going to be the greatest of all time because he's going to win a lot of majors and he's already got 16 now. So Djokovic was able to sort of weather the storms, um, and his, his ability to stay cool and calm under pressure, especially in the three tie breaks, was just absolutely incredible to watch. Patrick, uh, when, you, when a final goes that long, mentally in that spot, how much of it is strategy? How much of it is survival? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, they, they both know each other's strengths and weaknesses inside and out. So they do take that into account on sort of every swing that they take. But again, um, it's really about handling the moment and handling the opportunities. I mean, I really felt that there were times when they were both playing their best that every single shot they hit had to be not, not necessarily a winner, but handled with precision in a way that they knew if they didn't do that, they were in trouble the rest of the point. You know, watching this match on grass now, the way the grass is playing, I mean, it takes more than one or two amazing shots to win the point, and I think that's what we saw from both these guys, they had to sort of calculate within each rally, okay, what shot is going to give me an advantage for the next shot? So it was like they're both, you know, sort of great chess players thinking ahead, but doing it in a split second each and every point. Patrick McEnroe is our guest on Dickerson and Hood on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Patrick with, with Djokovic and Federer and Nadal. Are we witnessing the greatest generation in men's tennis right now? I mean, I don't think it's even a question at this point. I mean, it's just... Uh, the fact that they keep doing it in the majors, they keep doing it in the biggest tournaments. Um, the only, the only guy stopping Djokovic uh, and Nadal from catching Federer are Federer and Nadal, right? The only guy stopping <laughs> Djokovic from from catching the, uh, Nadal and Federer, Nadal and Federer. So you just go because the rest of the field, 
with a, a, a minor exception here and there, whether it's Stan Wawrinka a couple of years ago, obviously Andy Murray when he won a couple of Wimbledon titles and a U.S. Open title. But there's nobody of this younger generation coming up that's been able to step to the forefront and really threaten these guys in the big tournaments, in best of five, in the major. So, they're, they're, it's, it's, you know, it's like watching one of those, you know, you do those, um, those horse races where it's like computerized and one, one goes in front and then the other one goes in front and then on the next side comes in front. It's like these three guys keep pushing each other. It's like a, it's like a video game that they keep doing it. And at this advanced age in tennis, which is such a physical sport um, and so much based on your quick explosive movement, that, that they're all able to keep doing it now. Federer in his late 30s, the other two guys in their early 30s. I've never seen anything like it. I can't imagine that we're going to see anything like it in our lifetime. Patrick, is there another level as far we, when we watch Djokovic and we watch Federer, it's must watch. You have no other choice but to watch it because it's so great. Is there a next level for you as far as a must watch that you want to see in tennis, a matchup we haven't seen yet? Well, on the men's side, no. I mean, I'm hoping that some of the younger guys that have shown some signs like Sissipas and Medvedev and Hachinov and Oje Eliassim, that these guys step up in big tournaments. I mean, we've seen them do it in some of the Masters events. Obviously, Sissipas beat Federer at the Australian this year. But to be perfectly honest, I mean, in the big tournaments, no. There's nobody else right now. That's done it. Obviously, on the ladies' side, we're seeing a little bit more of that with Coco Goff, the, who was sort of the story of week one here, the 15-year-old beating Venus, and Isamova, who beat Halep at the French Open. So there's more signs that that can happen on, on the women's side. On the men's side, there's not many signs yet. Uh, and when you look at the way Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal are continuing to win, it's not like they're just scraping by, and they're, they're pretty much dominating the opposition, uh, maybe even more so than they did ten, you know, five to ten years ago. That's scary. Patrick, thank you so much for giving us some time. We really appreciate it. Keep up the great work, and we'll talk to you soon, okay? I appreciate you guys having me on, and um, let's look forward to the summer and the U.S. Open just uh, six, believe it or not, six weeks away. Thank wow. you again, Patrick. Really appreciate you got it, guys. it. My pleasure. Boom. That's how we do it on Dickerson and Hood. Patrick McEnroe. How about that, Eric? It was great. That? It was definitely the story of the day yesterday. Following it on Twitter because the host I was producing for refused to let me put it on the TV. Oh! But I was following it on Twitter and it was a lot of fun. So it was definitely the story of the day. He was really good. Yeah, see. So um, Patrick McEnroe, we had him on the show. You know why we had him on the show? So you wouldn't have to book him. <laughs> Patrick, Patrick. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. No, it was good to have him on because that was he was calling us from England. So he was right there. Didn't get a chance to ask him that Woody Harrelson question, though. Would have loved to ask him, what was it like for Woody Harrelson not allowed to be <laughs> in Wimbledon, kept down the stairs, and then finally they let him in? But that, was, that took over Twitter for a while, too. A, a um, very happy, red-nosed Woody Harrelson there at, at Wimbledon. So strange. Glad you were aboard here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. You know, for me, NBA season is not over because we still need to find out what's going to happen with Chris Paul for the future. But there's still a lot of interesting storylines still lingering in the NBA as we turn to theathletic.com. Darnell Mayberry joins us here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Check out Darnell's uh, columns, Click Bulls, and you'll be able to find out what's on his mind around the NBA. He joins me here on ESPN 1000. Darnell, Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I want to start off first and talk about the Thunder with you because you spent time in Oklahoma City. I hadn't got a chance to talk to you since that deal where Russell Westbrook goes to Houston. 
So what was your initial reaction to that story that Westbrook uh, gets traded to the Rockets? My initial reaction was that it was time. Uh, you know, we we just seen the Thunder kind of run its course uh, with with Russell Westbrook as their best player. So uh, they they plateaued, and three straight first round flameouts are evidence of that. Uh, they had a exorbitant tax bill that was growing uh, higher by the year, and they just weren't in a sustainable position any longer uh, with Russell Westbrook as their best player. Uh, and so they had to make a move. Uh, and and this was something that they could at least stomach uh, in the short term while collecting some long-term assets. Darnell, you know, you can talk about this in a very human level. I mean, Russell Westbrook is like that friend that had a lot of friends around him from Kevin Durant to James Harden and so many others, Oklahoma City, Serge Ibaka. And then you're, and then you're like French Fresh Prince at the Bel Air, you know, you just at the last episode, you just stand in the middle of the room saying, "Would everybody go?" That's how Russ felt, probably, right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's amazing where that team is now compared to where it was a decade ago. Um, and you know, you've got guys. You know, it sounds like a long time, but these guys who we're talking about: Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, you know, James Harden, Serge Ibaka. Um, you know, the, the list goes on. They had Jeff Green at one point, Reggie Jackson. They had blue guys that were really good role players, uh, Kendrick Perkins of the world, uh, Nick Collison, those type of guys. Uh, you know, those guys all took off, and Russ is the only one there. Uh, and you just never thought, if you go back to the beginning of the Thunder, that Russ would be the last guy standing. You know, he was the guy who everyone kind of wanted to run out of town. And now he's Mr. Oklahoma City. Uh, and, you know, a living legend in that city and in that state. Darnell Mayberry from TheAthletic.com with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. What do you think of the relationship between Harden and Westbrook back in Oklahoma City? What do you think it is now? Whatever it is now, I can guarantee you it's different than it was then uh, because they were just young players coming up back at that time, uh, and neither one of them. Uh, was the man in Oklahoma City? The man was Kevin Durant. So, uh, you know, they were they were both deferring to KD at that time, uh, and then obviously Russ James gets his own team, and then Russ, you know, gets the Thunder when Kevin Durant decides to leave. So, it's a it's an interesting dynamic that they're going to have to work out and figure out between the two of them now that they're both, you know, faces of franchise uh, franchises, and and now uh, two of the best you know, probably 10 players in the world. So um, I, I can't wait to see how it plays out. I think it's going to be fun in the regular season. I think the playoffs is really when it's going to kind of get a little thorny for those two guys figuring out, you know, when the other should be aggressive versus when they should kind of take it upon themselves. That's the kind of storylines that I'm going to be watching for as those two guys try to figure it out. So you're going to write this book about the Thunder? You're going to write it before Barry Trammell does? <laughs> I already wrote my book, man. I got the Hundred Things Thunder fans book out, man. That's that's my only book I'm I'm trying to write on the Thunder. I thought Russ was in my past, but uh, you know, I guess that's what happens when you cover a star. The guy just keeps making news, man. Right. I, I just I just think it's the greatest thirty for thirty that has not been written yet. Because think about where the franchise was in Seattle to where it is right now where like the great you can testify to this more so than I can to me like the best home court advantage in the league at one point because uh, it, it, it felt like I was watching a college game every time I put the thunder on during their height 
and now it's totally different. Yeah, yeah, it's different, and and that's okay. You know, I, I we wrote a piece today. You know, fortunately at the Athletic, we've got four writers, or three former Thunder writers, and, and a current Thunder writer who also used to cover the Thunder before joining the Athletic, and we did a roundtable discussion and just talking about you know the past, present, and future of the Oklahoma City Thunder and. Uh, it's just it's amazing the story that they've been on, the ride that they've been on, and the story that they've that they've uh, that they've built down there. You know, ten, twelve years ago, no one thought this was possible, uh, and you know they've had a lot of success. They didn't get it done with, unfortunately, having three MVPs come through there. But you know what an incredibly successful story it's been for Oklahoma City and, and that whole state. Let's talk about this column that you wrote about the Bulls, man. Let's talk. Let's you and I talk about this. <laughs> Which one? Uh, you know, around the draft. Look, I understand that the that the Bulls had some good first round picks. There's no question that is the case. But you don't get a participation trophy just because you have a passable grade with the first round picks. That's not that's not that's not building the franchise, Darnell Mayberry. I mean, that's nice, but but you know, Bulls fans are looking for results, and and the Bulls are spinning their wheels at this point. Tell me, I'm wrong. It beats the alternatives. That's what I would say to anyone who out, is out there with, you know, an overly abundant amount of <laughs> angst or, or anger toward the, the, the team, the front office, ownership, whomever. Uh, you know, it, it, it beats the alternative, and hitting singles and doubles ultimately is better uh, than not getting a hit. You know, obviously you want to get runs, you want to get home runs, but you know, they hit singles this, this off season. you know, starting with the draft and, and uh, you know, getting Kobe White and Daniel Gafford in there and then going out and getting Thaddeus Young and Thomas Sadoransky. So it beats the alternative of taking steps backwards. When they signed Rajon Rondo and, and Dwayne Wade, everyone knew that didn't fit. You know, at least they're doing things now that make some sense. And, you know, is it going to turn them into a championship contender overnight? No, but it's a step in the right direction. How many runs did they score with those singles and doubles? <laughs> Zero. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. That's Zero. All, that's my point. Like, like okay, so yeah. so you say the the alternative. What's the alternative? Like Knicks? Who, who who's worse than that? Like like you talking about like the Knicks yeah. or Phoenix, Charlotte? Yeah. Well, I would say the Knicks. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, you could be the Knicks, just kind of stuck chasing your tail, trying to get these big name free agents and striking out seemingly every other summer. So. Um, you know, there seems to be some positive momentum going here in Chicago since they traded Jimmy Butler in terms of just a roster uh, talent acquisition standpoint. You know, obviously it hasn't resulted in wins, but in terms of building some pieces with Zach Levine, Otto Porter, Laurie Markinen, Wendell Carter Jr., now you add the other guys I just named. You know, you're starting to see the pieces come together, and I think that's a step in the right direction. <sighs> <laughs> Still not good enough for you, huh? Oh man, you and I need to go out. <laughs> we need to we need to discuss some things, Darnell Mayberry. We need to have some discussion. We need some speaks. You and I. We need Baby to talk about steps. some things. Baby steps. Okay. Leave, not gonna happen overnight. Leave your leave your wallet at home. You and I can talk. <laughs> I'll, I'll pay for it. All right, as long as it's on you. Yeah, I'll take care of you because you need to hear you need to hear some things here. Um. So Jim Boylan on NBA TV says that his uh, first five is set. Listen. We had an interesting summer. We, had, we have Dunn, Levine, Porter, Markkinen, and Carter. We kind of have our, our first five set. And 
So what we wanted to do is add a quality draft picks, which we did, two great kids and I think going to be real good pros. And then we wanted to build depth behind those first five guys, and that's what we've done. Veteran depth. Um, you know, you, you've probably heard me talk about, you know, having a good soul, having a good spirit. That's important to us and playing for each other. And we got Thaddeus Young and we got Thomas Sadoransky. And, um, you know, we, 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 we got some guys that we think can give us high character depth to help us win. So what do you think of that starting five? you think that will work with that dog hunt? I don't think that's going to be their starting five. I mean, they, they keep trotting out Chris Dunn like he's, you know, I mean, he's, he's a placeholder. He's not, he's on the roster, but I, I, I mean, they're, they're actively trying to trade him. So, um, you know, if he's here in October, I'd be surprised. Uh, and if he's here and he's in the starting lineup, I'll be really surprised. They don't go out and draft the point guard seventh overall and then pay a point guard $10 million a year for the next three years uh, to, to then start the guy who was already in place. That just doesn't make sense. So, uh, you know, they can say that, but I do think two through five, they are set. Uh, they've got some nice talent, two through five, and I think they're still trying to figure out the point guard spot. See, that's what I'm talking about. See that sleight of hand? Trying to throw crap. I mean, Chris Dunn, you were at the press conference like I was on draft night. Right. Like, right. like Paxton even mentioned Chris Dunn. Chris Dunn is, Chris <laughs> Dunn, God bless Chris Dunn because he told me at the Hotel Intercontinental when he was drafted, I'm going to be the best point guard in the draft. He, then he told me that another time he told me he did not like how he was, um, not utilized properly in Minnesota. So he comes to Chicago, try to do something fresh. And Pax doesn't like Chris Dunn to be a starter on this team. So that's I think that's pretty clear. See, why would Boylan say that? That's what I'm talking about. The old sleight of hand, Darnell. <laughs> Trying to tell you. Watch out for it, huh? <laughs> the old shell game. <laughs> Chicago's famous for the old shell game. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but they made some good moves this offseason, though. I mean, I, I give them credit. Okay. All right. The thirty. Uh, the uh, over-under on betonline.com is that the Bulls are win 30 games, 30 and a half. You take the over or under at this point. I, I'm going to take the over on that. I think that's a little low. I mean, they, they won 22 last year, and they barely had their full team for most of the season. So, and then they, and they had a coaching change. So, you know, you, you give them stability on the bench in Jim Boylan, whether you like him, love him, or hate him, mm-hmm. whatever. It's stability. Uh, you give them a full season of Otto Porter Jr. Uh, and presumably they'll have health on their side, or at least better health than last year, uh, with Wendell Carter Jr. and Laurie Markinen. Uh, and they've got some depth. So I think they were better than what the record ended up being last year, which was 22 and 60. Uh, you know, I think they can get around 35, 35 to 40. Oof. Uh, hold on a second. They're in the East. Yeah. If they're in the West, I'd say, yeah, 30, but they're in the East. Uh, uh, hold on, Darnell. I'm going to give you Vinny Del Negro's number. Hold on a second, okay? Jonathan Hood. On ESPN 1000. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. It's the Cubs. It's the Cincinnati Reds. Here's Jesse Rogers. Jess? All right, Jay Hood. Things falling apart for the Cubs here in the eighth inning. They are trailing now 4-3. The Reds have a man on second. Nobody out after a wild pitch. 
This game fell apart for them in the seventh inning. Kirk Caselli, the catcher, hits a home run, a wind-aided home run off of Steve Ciszek to tie the game at three. And then a few minutes later, Baez and then Bodie both boot balls. They called the Bodie one an error. Nah, the Baez won a hit, but both of them were potential double play balls. Instead, it played at the lead run in this game. So the defense letting them down in the seventh. The Reds before that three solo shots, the Caselli one, Eugenie Suarez, and Yasiel Puig. Earlier in the game, uh, the Cubs uh, were down one nothing. took a 3-1 lead after Jason Hayward drove in a run again. He's been hot. Uh, Rizzo has a couple hits. Schwarber has a couple hits and a home run. But their offense has dried up since the fourth inning. So it's 4-3. Red lead. They have a man on third, one out here in the top of the eight. Back to you. Yo, it's time for Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. From Norfolk, Virginia, the four-time champion of the world and reigning welterweight champion of the world, Brunel Sweetie-Winnicott. Courtesy of ABC. Yes. It was shocking to see that story yesterday about Sweet Pea Whitaker, Pernell Whitaker, crossing the street of Virginia Beach, the intersection of Northampton Boulevard and Baker Road. He was struck and killed by a vehicle. One of the best pound-for-pound fighters that you will find passing away. And the reason why we're talking about him is because this is right up my my uh, era as far as boxing as a kid, watching in the 80s, into the 90s. Pernell Whitaker was great. Glad that you're with me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. To celebrate the life of Pernell Whitaker, uh, my friend from ESPN and ESPN Radio, our boxing expert, Myron Metcalf, joins me here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Myron, as always, I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, as always, man. What was your initial reaction? What was going through your mind uh, when you found out about Pernell Whitaker? You know, when I saw his name trending, I was hoping it was something good. Um, that's kind of how we respond to celebrities and, um, you know, when we see their names. You know, when I saw that he'd been, uh, you know, tragically, uh, you know, deceased, I was sad. I mean, it was just a, a sadness. He was my, one of my favorite boxers growing up. Uh, you know, I, I bonded with my father through boxing, you know, like we, Saturday nights, that was like our night watching fights and, and, Pernell Whitaker was was one of the best, and he did it for so long. I mean, he's a guy who was an Olympic champion, uh, one of the best Olympic teams the United States has ever had for boxing. Evander Holyfield was on that team. Uh, Meldrick Taylor was on that team. Virgil Hill became a, a champion later on. He was on that team. A bunch of guys were on that squad, and Pernell was uh, arguably the best fighter so when I heard the news, I was just I was just really down, you know, because that that's a guy who uh, didn't get his due. I think, uh, you know, just because it's easy to forget guys who dominated the '80s and the early '90s, and people remember maybe some of the losses to Tito Trinidad, the controversial loss to De La Hoya, but uh, Pernell Whitaker is one of the greatest of all time. Yeah, for those that have not seen those fights, like Myron and I had seen it live on back in the day on ABC, or or, or being able to watch some of those shows late night on HBO. It's on YouTube. You can yeah. check out some of those fights. It's great. So, 
so what's what really stood out to me about Whitaker's career is I, I hadn't at that time hadn't seen anyone uh, avoid punches and play great defense like uh, Whitaker. You know, I guess you could throw Roy Jones in that conversation. Floyd, of course, is always on his bicycle, Floyd Mayweather. But it's I think his defense was as impressive as his quick striking, was it not? Oh, yeah. I mean, to, to me, the guys you name, Roy Jones and, and Floyd Mayweather, and all of the guys who came after him, they, they were all imitating Perno Whitaker. Mm-hmm. Because Perno's goal was uh, to make you exhausted physically and mentally. And, and to watch him break fighters down without throwing a punch. I mean, if he, Sweet Pea, one of the challenges in terms of why he's not maybe a bigger name is he wasn't known for his knockout power. He wasn't one of those guys. But just the way he boxed and being so slick and making guys miss, uh, he, he birthed an entire generation of fighters who came after him. One of the guys that he beat early in his career was Roger Mayweather. Roger Mayweather, after he lost to Pernell Whitaker, left the lightweight division and moved up to welterweight. Uh, Pernell Whitaker was that good. And if you watch Pernell Whitaker in his fights, it's the glove at the chin, right? He's doing a lot of torso movement. He's got the glove at the chin to protect his chin. And now you go fast forward and watch Floyd Mayweather and how he defends himself. It's the glove at the chin, you know, and bouncing around. That's a, that's a Pernell Whitaker thing. Mm-hmm. So I know the Mayweathers like to say that they have this patented defensive style, but it's really just sweet pea style. Uh, that he had perfected years earlier. So I just think he's one of the best boxers we've ever seen uh, and turned defense into offense, if that makes sense. Just a, a guy who made sure that you were going to get tired. Uh, whatever strategy you had, it wasn't going to work. And he was going to make sure that, you know, he made you realize pretty early on in the fight that you weren't good enough to be in that ring with him. Myron Metcalf with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. So as we go through that list, right, of great lightweight boxers, so in, in you saw him like I saw him. So I saw Roberto Duran. I saw Julio Cesar Chavez, Pacquiao, obviously. Pacquiao fights this weekend, right? Yes. So he, he's Pacquiao's on this, fighting this weekend. It's Keith Thurman. Yep. Yeah. So he's on this weekend. So Floyd's on that list. Alexis Arguello, a lot of great CBS fights with Alexis Arguello. Um, yeah, Oscar he's a yeah, so De La Hoya's on that list. Shane Mosley's on that list. So so where is Whitaker amongst the best in that particular weight class? I think he's the greatest lightweight of all time. Um, I think especially if you give him the decisions he deserves. Uh, I think he beats Julio Cesar Chavez. Uh, later in his career, he beats De La Hoya at obviously a heavier weight. But before those fights, even those controversies, he was the most dominant lightweight, one of the most dominant lightweights we'd ever seen. Um, he was a guy who held those belts for six, seven years in the late 80s, early 90s. And then even moving up in weight, a lot of people thought he'd beat De La Hoya. I thought he'd beat De La Hoya. Uh, and I thought he'd beat Julio Cesar Chavez. And his one loss at lightweight, Jose Luis Ramirez, uh, that's a fight he won. You know, he just didn't get the decision. I think they fought overseas somewhere in France. But I think you can make the case that he's the greatest lightweight of all time. And in terms of modern fighters, pound for pound, you know, if you want to talk Henry Armstrong and you want to talk uh, Sugar Ray Robinson and Joe Lewis and a lot of guys that we haven't seen, um, you know, I don't think Purnell's top 10, but in terms of the fighters of the last 30 years, I think certainly Purnell Whitaker is a top 10 fighter uh, within that group. Yeah, Kellerman agrees, by the way. Kellerman, Max Kellerman from uh, First Take was talking about Purnell Whitaker uh, and feels. Uh, 
that he's in the top ten. Here's the thoughts from Max Kellerman on his passing. Very sad news from the boxing world today. Pernell Whitaker, who was one of the three greatest pure boxers who ever lived, the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world for about half a decade in the late 80s, early 90s, was killed in a car accident today as he was crossing the street, apparently. He was struck by a car and died on the scene. And uh, I did a public access show on boxing in high school and college called Max on Boxing starting in 1989. And the show might as well have been called the Pernell Whitaker Show. I talked about him probably more than any other subject. He was amazing to watch. And the crazy thing, guys, is as great as he was, I mean, if you talk to real boxing heads, who would have beaten Floyd Mayweather? Well, if they were both in their primes, Pernell Whitaker. You know, he was like that. Mm. Um, the crazy thing is he was like a Mickey Mantle figure in boxing in the sense that as great as he was, he had he treated himself better, had he taken yeah. care yeah. of himself yeah. more, <laughs> he would have been even greater. And even so, he's one of the ten best pound-for-pound fighters of all time. R.I.P. Pernell. Sweet So the thoughts there from uh, Max Kellerman. That's the fight that you would want to see, right? Floyd against Pernell Whitaker? Oh, my goodness, yeah. (laughs) Floyd in his prime versus Pernell in his prime, man. It would be be a great boxing match, you know. Um, Again, a lot of the tactics you see with Floyd Mayweather, if you watch Sweet Pea, you'll see that he was doing those things 20 years before Mayweather started implementing some of those things. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that fight. I would pick Whitaker and Sweet P in those fights, certainly. I just think he's a guy who, if you give him the fights he deserved, right? Ramirez, he won that fight. Julio Cesar Chavez, he won that fight. Oscar De La Hoya, he won that fight. Just those three wins, all of a sudden his name would be much bigger. He'd be a far more prominent name in, in you know, casual circles when it comes to boxing. Uh, but make no mistake, he's one of the greatest of all time. I'm glad you spent some time, man. So you know what this happens. Like after the show, now I got to go back to YouTube. <laughs> yeah, you got to, man. <laughs> so go, I, go watch the go watch the Ramirez fight again. The first one, he he beat him up in the second fight, but the first fight was the controversy. Jose Luis Ramirez. Uh, that's a big fight. I'm gonna check. I'm gonna check that out when I get home tonight because that that just it reminds me of, of spending time with family watching uh, Whitaker. Because yeah. the reason why that we even have a segment here tonight is because if you're unique and have a unique skill set, not just be in the sport, but as unique as Whitaker was for his time, that's why he deserves uh, a lot of accolades, especially here in in his passing. Definitely. Thanks so that's much, great. man. I appreciate you coming on. All right, thank you, brother. Myron Metcalf with us here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. Rest in peace, Sweepy. What a great boxer he was. Check out some of those great fights that he had on YouTube. He was very unique. Jonathan Hood. On ESPN 1000. Come on, come on. Petty, come on. Petty, 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 Eric, what is the pettiest story of the sports weekend? Go. 
Giants and Rockies had a doubleheader today. In the front end of the doubleheader, which the Rockies lost 19-2. to yeah. In the fourth inning, the TV crew for the Rockies decided they didn't want to show the score anymore. So every half inning, they took the telestrator and just scribbled out the score. So all you saw were the white lines over the actual score. <laughs> I love that. It's <laughs> awesome. What is the, um, what is the um, most pettiest story of the sports weekend? Well, the NBA never sleeps. Because Kyrie Irving was reportedly the only Celtics player who refused to sign balls for the team's charitable partners at the end of the regular season. He was quoted saying, no, I'm not interested in that. Super petty. So petty. So L.A. coffee chain bans Kawhi Leonard from all locations after failing to sign with the Lakers. I'm looking at Alfred Coffee. No, no for Kawhi. No coffee for Kawhi. That's a shame. How about that? So we put that on the poll at ESPN 1000. What is the pettiest stories of sports weekend? And then you can vote yourself. I like both of your guys. I mean, this this is not a bad story, but I think I'm voting for yours stories, Eric Felix. I think Kyrie's a madman. Like, that makes me angry, actually. <laughs> to me, that's worse than Patty. <laughs> Sign the ball for charity. What is Come your problem? On, man. I'm being petty. We thank you for listening, being part of the program here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Our thanks to you for listening. Our thanks to Jesse Rogers, Nola J. She's pissed at me. Uh, Dan Jiggets, also Darnell Melberry, and uh, Myron Metcalf. Show produced by Felix and Eric on the other side of the glass. Now, tomorrow, some rough football. The great Howard Griffith will be with us to talk some college football, the Big Ten. Also, Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday. If you're a wrestling fan, follow me at Wrestling TWT. We'll have wrestling talk at 9.30 tomorrow night. So for Eric and Felix, I'm Jonathan. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow at 7 right here on ESPN 1000. Jonathan Hood. I'm so hood. ESPN 1000.